Welcome to See Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. Hi, Hera. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. I am a fan of your work. And I was lucky enough to have you on my podcast, Becoming Your Best Version. I am a lawyer, a journalist, a radio show host, TEDx speaker, sobriety mentor, and author in Washington, D.C. What's your name? Oh, my goodness. I forgot that. (laughs) Maria Leonard Olson. My passion is helping other women through the experiences that I've had so that they don't feel so alone because most of my life I felt so alone with the challenges that I faced and I'm on a quest to help other women with whatever I can do. I work as a civil litigator in DC and it is not my passion, although I do do some pro bono work. I mostly fight with people all day long about their legal disputes and Mm. I don't enjoy it, but it fuels the rest of my life. It enables me to travel widely, to go to lots of women's conferences, to do a fair amount of public speaking. And so it is fuel for the time being. I hope someday I'll be able to work full time at my passions and more will be revealed. When I was interviewed by you, we discovered that we were at the same conference, the Forever Fierce conference, and in the same photograph and didn't even know it. I know that is remarkable because I would have loved to have met you that day. You are such a bright light and we have so much in common in our experiences. Yeah. So let's talk about your experiences, what you've gone through, and then how you help others. Okay. Well, I kept my sexual assault and sexual abuse, a secret for most of my life. And then when I turned 50, I got divorced. I got sober from alcoholism. I became an empty nester and I was living alone for the first time in my life. I felt rudderless and I knew I had to change just about everything in my life at that time. And if I didn't deal with the childhood traumas, I was told at one of my rehabs, then I would never get sober or stay sober because it was taking an emotional toll on me. And I was self-medicating with primarily alcohol, but then it turned to drugs when alcohol stopped working for me. So I needed to do some work on myself. And I am also someone who is addicted to busyness as a way to avoid being introspective. So my friends good-naturedly make fun of me and say, I'm not Maria as their hashtag because I'm always or frequently doing a 100 projects at once because when I slow down, I have to look within and that used to really bring me shame and self-hatred. Not anymore because of the work that I've done since turning 50, including therapy, including rehabs. One of the rehabs was for women who had been sexually assaulted or sexually abused. And I lived with these women for 45 days 
And it was the first time in my life I didn't feel like a freak. These women understood what it was like. These women, some of them had stories that were worse than mine, but all of them understood the weight of carrying around secrets Mm -hmm. and how shame can be like a tremendous rock on your back or your shoulders if you don't let it go, if you don't find a way to process it and let it go. And for me, it was like holding a beach ball underwater. It took so much psychic energy to ignore what had happened to me. And it kept popping up. If I weren't vigilant, it would pop up in my relationships. I would get triggered and angry for seemingly no reason, but it was because I hadn't done the work. I hadn't allowed a trusted woman to bear witness to my pain. I kept it all inside and it was eating me alive. You mentioned sexual abuse and assault. I thought it was my fault. Is that part of the shame that you carried? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was only seven. Same. But I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And on some level, it felt good. And right. this was someone I trusted. Mm-hmm. And so then when I later entered adolescence and I realized what had happened to me, mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to go to. My parents are not particularly stable people. And so I had no one. I had a younger brother, but he was not in a position to help me. Mm -hmm. I was just sad, scared, lonely, and overcompensating for something that I thought was my fault. Yeah. Mentioned you were raped. And I never considered the assault I went through as rape. Is that the same thing that you're talking about? Is it something separate? Separate. When I was 17, I was raped by the captain of the football team at the boys school where I went to an all girls Catholic school and he went to the brother school, all boys. Mm -hmm. And there's something in the DC area called beach week. And that's when seniors go down to the Maryland and Delaware shores And there's a lot of drinking. For many of us, it's the first time we're without parental supervision. I got really drunk, woke up in his bed, could feel that something had happened Mm -hmm. and he was nowhere to be found. But I left the bar with him. Mm -hmm. It was also a time in the 80s where anyone could get a fake ID. Nobody cared. And my friends didn't help me either in my daughter's generation. Girlfriends look out for each other. But Mm -hmm. back in the 80s and late 70s, it was sort of like you're on your own. You do whatever you want kind of thing. And on my 40th birthday, a guy also from the boys school crashed my 40th birthday party, whispered in my ear. I watched. While he did you. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. And I didn't know what to do. I don't know what impetus he had for saying that to me. I had no recollection that he was anywhere in that house. I was blacked out, completely blacked out when this happened. It was terrible. And this man was purportedly an upstanding man with political office in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And he said this to me. You say it like that means something. Just because he was a public figure. And so I could have ruined him. I could have gone to his wife. I could have gone to the press. I could have said, oh, listen, I'm bringing charges and you're a material witness. 
I could have ruined him. Yeah. But I chose not to. My AA sponsor said that that would harm me more than him. I'm not sure if that's true, but it was something that she talked me out of doing. Have you ever confronted the person who raped you? No, Mm -hmm. I haven't. He doesn't live in this state. I looked him up on Facebook and he lives in Florida and has three daughters. And I sometimes think, wow, Mm I wonder if he's worried about his daughters now. I totally get that. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry what happened to you happened to you because uh, one in four American women will have been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And that those are only reported statistics. And most of us don't tell anyone. Right. I didn't really talk about it till I was 52 and I'm 54. Yeah. The shame of somehow it was my fault. Because I am in the 12 step programs, AA, adult children of alcoholics and Al-Anon. I hear people's stories of pain every day Mm -hmm. and it is so common and not just for women. Mm. I think the Me Too movement helped more people come forward and share, but we are not alone. Knowing that so many people are hurting, do you believe that the world is a good place? (sighs) That's such a good question, Kara. My daughter, she's 27, and she said she doesn't want to have children because she doesn't want to bring kids into this messed up world. And while that makes me sad because I want grandchildren, I think I'll be a better grandmother than I was a parent, actually. I will be too. (laughs) I'm still an optimistic person. I have come to believe that we are put here to learn lessons and we either choose to learn them or not. And then if we don't learn them, that the universe will conspire for things to happen again until we learn them. And so I can only work on me and I am working on my own inner peace, whatever that takes. In fact, I went to a kickboxing class today because I had a lot of anger and I didn't know what to do with it. And I don't even do kickboxing. It just sounded like a really good idea because I wanted to punch something. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, that's really good. When you say that the world keeps giving you the same lessons, that must be the reason I keep having the same ahas. Indeed, indeed. I'll be like, oh, that makes so much sense. Oh, wait, I think I've learned that like five years ago. Why do I have to relearn it? (laughs) And you said something to me that I have thought about probably every day since we last talked. and. That is being comfortable with not knowing why. Mm -hmm. As a lawyer, that's a hard thing for me to accept. Oh, yeah. But I have accepted it in certain areas of my life and it feels so much better. Thank you, Hera. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. I'm so glad. You wrote a few books, but you wrote a book called 50 After 50. 50 After 50, Reframing the Next Chapter of Your Life. And it is um, my personal story. It includes, well, that's a third of the book is my story, which includes my divorce, my getting sober, my finally dealing with childhood traumas, my becoming an empty nester. And that was a hard transition for me because I had given up my legal career willingly to be an at-home mom. I feel very fortunate that I had that opportunity because my mom didn't. I was a latchkey kid and I hated it. 
so I wanted to be a present mother if I could be, and I was able to be. But when my kids started pushing me away, I didn't know who I was anymore. And when I got divorced, I had to go back to practicing law because I didn't even ask for alimony because I was so ashamed of having drank my way out of a 25 year marriage. But then the second two thirds of the book are about my gift to myself of trying 50 new things during my 50th year to determine how I wanted to live the next chapter of my life. I didn't intend to write this book, but so many people asked me for my list of 50 things when they said, oh, what are you doing for your 50th birthday? And I'd say, oh, I'm going to try 50 new things. And 50 is a huge reckoning point for many people in our society. Mm -hmm. So I kept this list on my phone. It was a dynamic list that I would add to and subtract from as I learned about new things to try. And one of my author friends suggested I pitch it as a book to an agent and an agent got me a good publisher. And four years later, I'm still talking about this book. In fact, I did a TEDx talk at City University of New York in November that was largely about the book because it, I believe, struck a chord with many people, no matter what age they are. And the lessons in it include, if you don't make any changes in your life, that's a choice too. Mm -hmm. You can settle for the safety that sameness offers you or not. Yeah. And I changed almost everything. And the editors wanted me to categorize the various things that I did. So the 50 things are categorized into spiritual endeavors, adventure travel, learning and teaching, social activities, physical challenges, and a few more. But each one taught me something about myself. Not all of them are things I'm ever going to do again, but they taught me, for instance, what courage is to me, which isn't the absence of fear, but it is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. It taught me who I wanted in my life after 50. It taught me that I want to be very intentional about how I spend my time because now I'm 58 and I have lived more life than I have ahead of me. So I'm going to drink fully from the cup of life. I am going to say no if it's something I don't really want to do. No more people pleasing for me. Nope. I'm done. My favorite line is that's not going to work for me. Ah, yes. So much so that I was at a tennis match recently with women I I don't know. I mean, I'm familiar with, but I didn't know them well. I was invited to be on their team. And one of the ladies was giving out shiny pennies for good luck. And I didn't want one because I didn't want to be superstitious. If I had it and I won, it would be the penny. If I lost, it would be the penny. And even if I had taken it and put it in my purse, I would still know that I had the penny. So (laughs) I sweetly declined. I think that was a very unpopular thing to do. But having (laughs) that penny just wasn't going to work for me. You know, and I'm at an age where I can say that. Yes. Understand that it's an unpopular thing. Just take the penny. But I didn't want to just take the penny. Isn't that so silly? No, it's not. It's brava. I say, hell yes. Yeah. Stand in your power. We don't owe people explanations anymore. If we even ever did. I use a variation of what you just said. I say, I have another commitment. Oh, yeah. Because I don't have to tell people what I'm doing. That commitment can be for me to put my feet up and recharge. That's good. Yeah, I was told to not apologize for anything. Like, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I can't make it, I can't make it. 
is just fine. I want to move towards that. I hear myself apologizing still, and I don't want to. I don't want to. The person who told me this was running late. We were talking about always apologizing. And she said, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I was late. You just say, thank you for waiting, which is totally different. So good. Yes, it's a shift. It's a shift. I talk a lot in the book and in my TED talk about reframing how we even speak to ourselves mm-hmm. yeah. because we've been socially conditioned to be somewhat, I don't know, subservient, not stand in our power as women in our fifties. That's what the message that I received and I still receive it from my Asian immigrant mother. She said to me recently, I'm leaving for a four week trip to Guatemala. And she said, well, who's going to make your significant other dinner. And I said, he is an adult. He will make dinner for himself. He lived alone for 13 years as an adult. And she said, well, who's going to take me to the doctor? And I said, your son. And Mm -hmm. she said, oh, I don't want to bother him. Excuse me, mom. He is a golf pro. He doesn't even work if it's raining. Like I am a lawyer and it's actually hard for me to take you to the doctor sometimes. I love you and I do it, but you can ask your son. Very interesting that she doesn't want to bother him, but it's okay to bother you. Yes. Well, I told you how madly in love I am with my husband and I don't cook for him. We fend for ourselves because I'm not a cook. I do other things for him. Good for you. Good for you. And good for you for picking a partner who understands and values you for who you are and doesn't buy into societal messages that the wife is supposed to cook. Who says? You know, I think his first marriage, he did buy into all those things and I'm his third marriage. And so I've got the good version. (laughs) He, He did have a skewed idea of what it was to be a husband, but he was very young when he got married, they got pregnant. And so He did have some funny ideas of what you should be as a wife. And I said, I'm so glad that you don't think those now because we wouldn't be married at all. We'd be divorced so quickly. I don't don't expect things from him that he's not good at or doesn't enjoy. So we just have to love each other where we're at. I love that. I love that. I spent most of my life being so careful about how I spent my money most Americans are, but I wasn't careful about how I spent my time. Mm. And time is the one thing none of us can get more of. We don't even know how much we have. And so I would encourage your listeners to drink fully from the cup of life because the most commonly expressed regrets of people who are dying, according to studies, the regrets are not allowing myself to be happier, not doing what I wanted to do, and instead doing things to please others, and not nurturing my closest relationships with friends and family. And I may have other regrets, but those three will not be mine. Mm -hmm. And I hope that anyone listening to this will seize the day and do exactly what feeds your soul. Don't wait. The pandemic, I hope, taught us that life is tenuous. We don't know when our last day is. So please, 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 your life is happening right now. 
That's such a good message. Thank you. That's exactly it. Life is so short and it could be done tomorrow. You just don't know. So, but I want to include also that living your life fully. I think we're both, I'm a go, go, go person too. I've got 16 projects going at all times. Mm -hmm. A down day is also living exactly as I'm intended relaxing and enjoying the breeze and not moving yes is just as important as the rest of it is living out loud and making sure you seize the day i agree because if i'm rushing i can't be fully present yeah. with the person i'm talking to with anything and i do spend more time if i see something beautiful the sun reflecting on the trees i stop yeah and enjoy it and sometimes i have to count to 20 because I'm someone who is fairly impatient and I'm working on it, but that's who I am right now. <laughs> yeah. One time during a tennis match, we were playing outside and I stopped in the middle of a point to say, hey, look, a rainbow. Those ladies never let me live it down. But how many rainbows do you see in a lifetime? I'm going to stop and check out the rainbow, even if it's during a point. I love that. Thank you for reminding me. I need the reminders because I'm also pretty stubborn. Me too. I need the reminders. So we'll just have to keep re-listening to our own selves telling us the right answers. <laughs> yes, I will. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the light that you bring to the world and for bravely sharing your story and giving us a place to share ours. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of See Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thanks for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.